I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm John Snow and this week's guest is the broadcaster, journalist and Labour peer, Joan Bakewell. Joan was born in Stockport in 1933 and grew up in Hazelgrove, Cheshire. She began her career as a studio manager for BBC Radio in 1954 and has lived in London ever since. Her broadcasting career now spans six decades and at the age of 90, she continues to present TV and radio shows. Last year, she was diagnosed with colon cancer and has been very open about this and the chemotherapy she's going through. Despite this, she still made an appearance on our TV screens earlier this year, presenting Landscape Artist of the Year, alongside Stephen Mangan. It was a pleasure to sit down with an old friend to talk about her incredible career, but also what the future holds. I hope you enjoy it. Joan Bakewell, you've always been freelance. You've loved that word and the idea of it from the moment you heard it mentioned at the BBC. In the 1950s, that was. Is it possible that you're the most successful freelancer in the United Kingdom? I love the word freelance. <laughs> makes me think of the Crusades and people flocking to fight simply because they like it, wielding a lance, a free lance. Um, yes, so I go into fight whenever I feel like it, um, and if I don't, I don't do it, which means I turn down work. I'm not under a contract to anyone, and I like that freedom. When you uh, meet up with Sir David Attenborough, he always asks if you're still working. <laughs> Your answer is, of course, always yes. Will you ever stop? Is retirement in any way appealing? I sometimes wonder what retirement must be like. But, of course, being a freelance, I can retire when I want for a week at a time, for a month at a time, although the world might forget me by then and never come back to ask me to work again. Yeah, I bet you've never actually retired. I've never done a, that, no. no. Um I like working. I only accept work that I enjoy. So why would I give it up? 
The only reason would be that I had something else to, I wanted to do, like writing a book, for example, something that has tempted me for some time. I've, I've written a few. Um, I like it when I begin. I enjoy it in the middle phase, and I hate the end, writing the end of a book, because I'm tired of it by then. How many have you written? About, I've, I've published about 14, but some of them are um, two novels, Four autobiographies, yes. It's incredible to have combined that with a broadcasting career of some density too. It's not remarkable at all. It's what I do. It's, you get up and you start doing it about nine, about nine o'clock, about 9.30. The truth is you're an absolute blue stocking. You were when you were at university and you've never stopped. The blue stockings are still on you. No, the blue, st blue stocking really means a sort of academic tendency. Mine is a more journalistic tendency. I like writing for the sake of writing, which is not a blue stocking attribute. Uh, it's a journalistic attribute. <laughs> <laughs> there was another uh, successful series of Landscape Artist of the Year on our screens earlier this year, uh, which you host with the actor Stephen Mangan. Are you um, an artist yourself? No, I'm not at all. Um, and I've done this programme now for 10 years, and I've been intrigued by how many people do try to paint or draw with charcoal or, or pencil or whatever and I have tried it and I'm completely unable to do it I can't I can't draw an oval face for example that looks like the person I'm looking at it just doesn't come right I can't do it but you have a brain that can describe that face and that can intimately examine the human being but you don't believe that you can actually set it down no, I, I've tried. Form. I've tried to set it down. We have to imagine, um, you know, I'm a journalist. I can rattle off rubbish at a, a fantastic speed required by any newspaper. So one has, and, and I can't draw a circle. So one has to assume that someone like Turner or Caravaggio couldn't write a sentence. I think there's a streak of naughtiness here. You describe yourself as... Freelance. Yeah, but you, 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 you sort of made it sound as if you were just any old hack. Yes, well, I am, a, I was, I am a, in that sense, I'm available. I'm in the market of freelances, together with all those who've just left university and all those who are, you know, in the old people's home. Have you always been a freelance? I mean, when, when you I had a contract the with the BBC briefly, mm. and it wasn't particularly happy. But did you then go freelance, as it were? Yes. I mean... When you take a contract with a company, they push you around if they want to. You yield your independence. And that happened at the BBC. They were keen to move me here and there. And I'm sure they were keen to promote my career. But it was to promote it in terms that they defined, not me. And I, did, I wasn't like, happy with that. What do you do to relax? Um, read. Um, cook. I, I like the hesitation because I think you're wondering, do I ever relax? Yes, I am. I'm wondering about that. <laughs> I'm very good at lying on the sofa and nodding off. How's about? How's that? Well, that is impressive if you can do it. Yes, no, I, I enjoy that kind of um, bo real body relax relaxation. I enjoy that a lot. But if I wanted to um, relax, I go to look at art. I go, I go to art galleries. I enjoy looking at works of art a lot. Have you ever been a trustee of an art gallery? No, I haven't. I was um, involved with Tate quite a lot. Mm. And I was on the jury who chose the architects for Tate Modern. 
which was a real challenge. Mm. I was a, a sort of chum of Nick Sorotas, and we got on tremendously well. I sat on different committees for him, but I was never a trustee. You should have been. You Nothing have that been. high up. No, but I was a trustee of the Tate, and I must say I was never worthy of it. You could have had my place. Why on earth did I accept it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know whether I could have taken the responsibility. I'm not very good at meetings. I tend to be a bit fidgety. I'm all right in galleries. I like going around looking at pictures, saying, oh, buy that one, don't buy that one. But I don't think my judgment would be worth anything. Fidgety is much better than sleepy. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> I think they like fidgety, if you can possibly be so. You celebrated your 90th birthday in April. Was there a party or is that on hold? The party was on hold because of various um, medical situations. Um, I hope to resurrect it in the autumn. Um, there was a family get-together. But it's a very strange number, isn't it, 90? It's extraordinary mm. because one never meets anybody of 90. And no, not very often. It is odd. Even um, you probably don't know many people of 90. No, I don't, I don't recognise it in myself. I feel about 70. Yes, I, I, well, I would say that you could be between 60 and 70 to look at, let alone to speak with. Well, I feel, I feel as I did when I was 70. I don't feel I've um, lost any capacities since then. Um, my memory is going. My short-term memory is poor. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Well, you I'm, don't need to be 90 for that. I mean, there are plenty no, of people much uh, a lot of you. It, yeah. it afflicts a lot of people. Yeah. And um, But I'm aware of it. Uh, and I have to keep a diary. And I use lots of little yellow post-it notes hmm. to remind me to, you know, the laundry is in the, in the dryer, things like that. So otherwise, things go on churning away. Have you moved into the digital age? I mean, do you have a... A pocket phone on which you put oh, your yes, notes? Of course, yes, of course I do. I'm quite like to have a grandchild within reach. <laughs> but my grandchildren, you see, are in their 20s now. So they've all got interesting jobs and haven't got time to spare for me. Uh, although they would. I mean, they're willing. It's just that they're unreachable. Um, but they would say, it's like this. You have to remember to do this, Grandma. You have to remember to do this. Whenever there's been an article about you or an interview from the last five years or so, the journalists have always commented on how you don't look your age. That's still true today. I mean, I'm looking at you now and I can't see a single grey hair in your head. Um, and, and, I mean, you just look marvellous. My hair is in the care of my hairdresser. Mm -hmm. So that's why you don't see grey hairs. It's to his credit that you don't. Yeah, but look, the completely your hair is completely compatible with your relatively wrinkleless face. Well, um, it must be genes or the, the, the lighting, you're not looking close enough. Um, I don't give it much attention. I certainly don't have anti-aging creams or I don't <laughs> bother. You know, I'm quite prepared to get old and very, very wrinkly one day. Is longevity quite prevalent in your family? Um, there is, a, on one side of the family, grandparents would live to their 90s, into their 90s. Amazing. Which was um, quite impressive because they led, led lives of physical hardship. Um, so they'd survived jobs, artisans' jobs with their hands, you know, making, mm. breaking in factories and things. Um, so that's to survive into your 90s when you've had a life that hard is impressive, I think. How did Joan break through then? Well, my family were um, both grandfathers worked in factories. Their wives brought up lots and lots of children. And I was the child of one of those children. 
And uh, it was quite clear early on that my mother and father felt factory work was not certainly not in my line. And they wanted to make my life better than their own, which they were. Um, they worked in offices and as draftsmen. Hmm. So they wanted me to pass the 11, number one target, 11 plus, plus. 11 plus. Number two target, get your GCSEs. They weren't called that then, but never mind. Get the next lot. Then the next lot was get into a university. So I had all these targets set for me by my ambitious parents who wanted me to have a good, good life. But it wasn't only a good life. It was the best of the best. I mean, you went to Oxbridge and, uh, you know, I mean, you went to the best universities. Well, I responded to their urging, not to, not to mention their their pressure, you know, do your homework. Mm. I mean, for example, when I was doing my homework in my teens, my father always sat beside me reading a book. Now, he sat very close and he said, I'm here available if you want to ask me a question but I'm not prompting you I'm not doing your homework for you but I'm here on call if you want me to be and did you in a sense pass this on to your own children not particularly no no I, I was that generation of liberated parents who <laughs> thought children would find their own way and become geniuses musicians poets in their own right your book the Tick of Two Clocks, which came out a couple of years ago, is an account of you moving from the house you lived in for 50 years and downsizing. How was that experience of going through half a century of stuff? It was it was a nightmare, really. Um, I do think it's important that older people should move to a single floor where they can have everything within reach and not depend on other people to help them around. On the other hand, I did have to move a lot of books and get rid of a great many records as well. Threw away a lot of vinyl. How folly, what folly was that? I set up a schedule of how to do it, um, and it wasn't a very sophisticated one. For example, it went like this. Saturday morning, put out piles of books in a shelf on the doorstep and invite people to take books away. I wish I'd been passing. Where was this, in London? In Chalcot Square. Good heavens, in North So on Saturday morning, there was a, uh, I used to, I had a book, wooden bookshelf, so Ikea bookshelf, and I filled it with books I wanted to get rid of, and a little crowd gathered. It must have become a little mecca. <laughs> yes, it was. Oh, Jones, oh, it's Saturday, Jones out with books. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have to throw much away? I mean, anything you... Or there was just stuff that you had to keep? Well, there was private stuff, which mm. was, was kind of intimate and important. And I gave that to the British Library. Mm. So the library took that away. So it's in the British Library. People want to go and see it. It's not very interesting, I don't think. Perhaps it will be in 100 years. Uh, or perhaps they'll have thrown it out by then. Anyway, it became somewhere you could uh, you can ask the British Library I've got a record of this that and the other would you like to take it and they can say no but in this case they said yes but there were things you had to keep presumably well yes I suppose um, I'm rather fond of kitchen gadgetry and I wasn't going to let any of those go because I like gadgets in the kitchen family photos a lot of photographs and I still have I was looking at them the other day. I went to China in 1985 before it opened up and I took a lot of photographs then. I was showing my daughter. And they are a little bit blurred, a little bit faded, but they're pictures of China in 1985. Mm. Uh, so there are no tower blocks. Um, there's trading on the streets. 
Um, everyone is wearing the Mao costume, the blue suit. Uh, so they are quite historic, those photographs. They are, they're historic documents. Yeah, they are. They're, they're an interesting record. I hope somebody's listening because um, the truth is anybody writing a book and thinking about China and the rest of it might well be rather tempted to have a look at them. Perhaps I could write it myself. Perhaps you could. Good heavens, there's nothing to stop you. You're only 90. That's right, I've got plenty of time. <laughs> plenty of time, plenty of time. You are extraordinarily active. I mean, for example, you sit in the House of Lords. I often see it on closed circuit. I can see you and you're not asleep. Um, <laughs> uh, how often do you go? Well, I, tr I haven't been recently because I'm having medical issues, they call it. Mm. Uh, but I'm thinking of going later this week. I try to go when they're sitting about twice a week. Um, they don't sit till the afternoon, so you can get your major income-earning job done in the morning and then head off um, to the House of Lords for about half past two or three o'clock. And then the business of the House is really conducted between about three o'clock and seven o'clock because they expect most of the elderly gentlemen there to go home at about seven. Well, here's an ignorant question. I mean, do you get an allowance if you do turn up? Yes, you do. It's about £300, I think. Um, you you have to partake. You can't just walk in hmm. and walk out and, and then submit a bill. Um, I undertake. I always feel I have to do something to earn my money. It's very hard to imagine Joan Bakewell sitting quietly anywhere and not standing up at some point and saying, really, I've got to say here that we've got to consider this from a completely different point of view. I'm quite sheepish in the House of Lords because it's full of very eloquent and well-qualified people. For example, lawyers. The lawyers and judges stand up and say something. I can't challenge them. I don't know it. I don't know how to. But you did challenge them on television. Well, yes, but that's in television's terms. So that they themselves, they, the knowledge, people with the bags of knowledge have to... Concede that they've got something that you don't understand and they have to explain to you. Whereas in the House of Lords, they've got this bag of knowledge and it's up to you to tap into it. Yeah, but you have to distinguish between hot air and real. That's not difficult. That's not difficult. Is it not? Not really. Um, don't forget it's political, a lot of it. So there's a lot of hot air, political hot air, deliberately uh, spouted in the Lords. Uh, have you always been political? I mean, were you political as a student? It's interesting, this, because I would have said no, because I've never joined a political party. On the other hand, uh, I do remember in the post-war election, 1945, the school had a mock election, and we all divided up uh, entirely girls, girls' grammar school, uh, fee-paying, so middle class with us aspirations so accordingly I joined the group of girls who call themselves conservative and I went home and said um, we're having a school election and um, I'm going to join in um, and I'm served, signed up with the conservative that's good isn't it Go away. my parents went ashen <laughs> they said that, no no that's not quite right that's not us we're not we're not conservative we're actually labour so I went straight back to school and said, sorry, made a mistake. I'm not Conservative, I'm Labour. <laughs> when I got to Cambridge, I joined the Labour Club. I met Attlee, actually. Um, I sat next to him at dinner. He's a rather quiet, shy man. Very Clement Attlee. Prime yeah. Minister at the time? No, post-Prime Minister. Uh -huh. This was in the 50s. I've always been 
a rather lazy member of the political parties, and I remain a member of the Labour Party. I'm a Labour peer. Um, Ed Miliband invited me to be a peer, and I, uh, I said, are you sure you're quite, you know what you're doing? Um, because I'm rather inert, and I'm not enormously passionately clued up on Labour policy. And he said, no, no, no. We, I, I just think you'd be a good member of the House of Lords. Um, but I sit on the Labour benches. I take the Labour whip. I don't vote their way if I actually don't agree, obviously. I follow my conscience first. Uh, but I'm, pr I'm proud to be a Labour peer, and they've got a very good bench. They're very loyal, and, uh, and it's a pleasure to be among them. And where do you think your socialist tendencies sprang from? My background. Mm. I do think people's political allegiances are traceable to their background. I mean, I'd done a lot of thinking about it as well, but there's no doubt that the story of my grandparents' poverty and the early death of children because of poverty, this is in Salford and Manchester and in Gorton in Manchester, what I knew, what I saw of their lives and the way our lives of their community required such change, such radical change. Um, I had no hesitancy in joining a party that I thought would be actively on their side. But you know, for people who don't know you well, you're very posh, a lovely voice, <laughs> lovely accent. It's hard to believe that you came from poverty. Well, um, my parents weren't poor. They were... Um, my father worked in a, a an engineering company and had taken a, a nightclub. He was an orphan, and he went to what is now Chetham's Music School, but in his day was an orphanage. And his father died when he was seven, and he was packed off to an orphanage, where his name is in the uh, record books. Um, he had He was expected to leave at the age of 13 and become one of the artisan classes of Manchester. That's what the orphanage was for, to train the artisans of Manchester labour. But he had other notions and he went to night school. He, he, he left school and went to work in a foundry. He had to be in the foundry at six o'clock in the morning. But in the evening, he went to night school. He wanted to better himself. I come from a family of people trying to better themselves. I'm still trying to do it, John. You're listening to Snowcast with me, John Snow, and we'll be right back after this. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Have your views changed over the years? Well, um, given that this 
post um, post war election, I, my parents signed me up, as it were, to the Labour Party. When I went to Cambridge, I joined the Labour Party there and campaigned again. There was an election in the early 50s. I marched against the trouble with, in um, Suez. Suez? I marched over Suez. 1956. I mean, I just went to Trafalgar Square and milled around. I mean, I didn't do anything, say anything, wave anything. Um, but I, it stirred my conscience. I was I knew going to it was say, wrong. your soul was touched by the issue. Yes, I was really... I, it was enough to get me out of bed and t down the road. Then I had a ban the, a ban the bomb thing. Um, but it was more... I, was ca I campaigned for the Labour Party at an election in the early 50s. <clears throat> I didn't... Um, march anywhere interesting. I didn't go long journeys. I sometimes joined people as they approach London <laughs> and swell the ranks. Uh, but I w I've got small children and things like that. So I've always, I've always been interested in uh, what's going on. And I've always backed them. And even now, I'm at my age, I tweet my support if there's something going forward in Trafalgar Square. Well, let me ask you about the now then. Is the Labour Party in a good place as we speak? I think it's in a very good place because it's going to win the next election and be led by Keir Starmer. This is a very important moment for the country, which is going to prove very profitable. I think they're still thrashing out the details of their policies, some of which I um, haven't really got across yet and others which I agree with. Um, but they're feeling very strong. They won a lot, of course, in the local elections. They're highly organised now. They've got themselves sorted out. Um, and they're quite passionate about it. I feel it in the House of Lords. There's a great, there's a great mood that the Labour Party is, is going for it. Um, so I feel rather good about these times. Uh, and do you think it's reflected in the other House as well? To some extent. I tell you where it's reflected. It's reflected among the mayors in this country. And I'm a great fan of Andy Burnham's, for example, mm. in Manchester, doing fantastic stuff there. Um, so I think it's reflected in local government. And I think, you see, I think local government is terribly important. And local government is really stirring, I think, now. So I have hopes. What has stirred it? Well, winning a lot of seats, of course, mm. and makes them suddenly realise, oh, we've, got, we've now got to d deliver. Um, and they worry about people's welfare, uh, cost of living, the kind of imposed taxes or not that they need. Local government is a very expensive enterprise, um, so they need to be very uh, meticulous in their accounting. Uh, I think they need to be concerned about local issues that and take them to, the pe to people and say, what do you care about? So I think it would be very exhilarating to be, you know, chair of a local council. It would be thrilling. Amid your journalistic development and activities with the BBC and elsewhere, did your politics ever get in the way? I mean, I, I'm quite sure. Uh, I have at the BBC, in the BBC been called a lefty, <laughs> which is always a rather a, a nasty term of abuse, I think. Lefty. It doesn't sound very nice. Um, whereas you're governed by concerns of justice and fairness. thats I don't mind that. That's better than lefty. Um, I don't know. I wouldn't know whether they say she's a lefty, don't put her in that programme, because it never comes to my attention. Well, you and I have both been in broadcasting for most of our lives. Mine not quite as long as yours, but still a reasonable time. What has been the most significant change for you over the years in in terms of the work we do and did? I think there's been an increasing willingness 
and eagerness even to embrace a broad spectrum of popular thinking so that it isn't just high-minded Oxbridge ideas that get exchanged between you and I, particularly as you didn't go there, um, but it isn't, it isn't that high-minded kind of debate that you used to have in the 30s and 40s on radio, Malcolm Muggeridge and Commander Campbell and people like that. You get you got um, what would offensively be called ordinary people. You get real people. You get people with issues, people with stories to tell. Broadcasting has broadened its remit to embrace all these people as legitimate contributors to the debate. You've been very open about your own cancer uh, diagnosis, which in, to many people is hugely you know, encouraging. Um, it'll encourage people who've not found it so easy to talk about it. And I'm wondering the extent to which your outlook and viewing of the news has been affected by your own condition. As you approach 80, your contemporaries start to die. They, I mean, it's unavoidable. That's how the statistics are. But you, you, you see, you lose friends. Mm. In, in doing that, you become familiar with the idea of death and dying. And it's unavoidable that if those close to you are dying, if your own thoughts revert to yourself. I will be doing this soon. I will be doing this quite soon. And it, it changes your view of how to behave and how you regard yourself. So when I got cancer, I think, oh, yes, here's the first clue. <clears throat> I'm being nudged here by fate. It's telling me, yes, your turn's coming along. So I thought, well, I'd embrace it thoroughly, do everything I can, and, um, as it were, spread the message that it's worth fighting it, but um, you have to be reconciled to your destiny. And we're all going to die, John. It's a great shock, isn't it? It's a terrible shock, and... Um... It hasn't fully hit me yet, but then I am 20 years younger than you are. <laughs> you advised readers of the New Statesman in an interview earlier this year to write your will. Does this advice come from the cancer scare? Uh, no, I've always thought it was interesting to know where your goods and chattels and your bank account and your house and your books and things would go. Uh, and so I've always thought it was an interesting thing to write a will and uh, and make sure that... Auntie Mary got this, or a friend who you'd lost contact with, you know, got some memento of your life. And I think it was rather, it's rather a creative thing to do, to create a construct of all the places where your goods will go when you're not there. So there, there is something worth doing about a will. But your will has to be rather fluid because you keep outliving half the people you've been trying to leave some money for. <laughs> Isn't that true? Um, <laughs> well, yes, yes, people uh, do die, and I think, oh, I'd, I'd left them that. No, I bet it, that goes back in the pot. <laughs> it's wonderful to be able to have some mirth amid the question of death, isn't it? I think it's something we can't, we don't confront enough. Um, I'm, I'm quite interested in the business of death and dying. I'm interested in coffins and funeral wreaths and church decor and I'm a humanist and we have celebrants who have non-religious uh, ceremonies uh, available for people. So I'm interested in departure. I don't think it should be hurried. I think it should be relished, not by you yourself because you're, you've said goodbye, but by those who are close to you. Should you lie in state? We can't all lie in state. <laughs> no, but I mean... I think viewing of the body is, is to be discussed. 
I haven't yet discussed it with my children. I'm not yet old enough, John. No, no, indeed not. But um, do, does it matter that the physical passing is I think, witnessed? Um, I think to look upon the dead, particularly those you dearly loved, is a very important rite of passage because it does teach you that um, this is you're coming this way one day. Uh, we are all the same. Human destiny is identical when it comes to the flesh and blood, however wealthy or indeed however poor you've been. You lie there on the slab and those who love you stroke your cheek, your cold cheek. And that's a really important mm. rite of passage. Let me ask a sort of rather flippant question. Is life more exciting in your 90s? <laughs> it continues to be exciting. But that's amazing because... There are certain things that fall away. I mean, your physical agility isn't so mm. great. Your My memory is terrible. So when I'm telling an anecdote, I sometimes see people glaze over and say, you've told us this before. And I'm fearful of doing that. I need to be reminded, no, don't don't tell that story again. You've, you've told it many times. Um, otherwise... The memory I do mind, there's not much else I mind because I was never very physical. I didn't ski or play hockey or or much tennis even. So I don't I don't miss that. But the thing is that really you are an intellectual. It's your brain, your mind, your creativity with words. That's the thing that we will always remember you for. Well, I think the reading of books or the capacity to read books, magazines, newspapers is a life uh, is a lifeline. I mean, I devour stuff each day. Um, if I lost the capacity, if my eyesight went, I would be seriously limited and very, very depressed. So um, keep reading. I keep reading. I keep reading and listening and sharing opinion. I tweet a little bit. My one or two opinions, rather tentatively, I have to say. Um, but I read the Twitters quite a lot. I'm I'm interested in the exchanges that go on. Mm. Uh, and I quite sometimes like joining that debate, but I'm a little wary of doing that because most people on Twitter are not 90. However, I sometimes share by listening. But the wonderful thing is that you are 90 and that you're a joy at 90. And I must say, for me, this has been the most wonderful experience and I just want to thank you very, very warmly for opening up and talking about That's being That's very 90. generous of you, John. Thank you. Well, thank you, Joan. Joan Bakewell. That was broadcaster and journalist Joan Bakewell. And you can find details of her latest book, The Tick of Two Clocks, A Tale of Moving On, in our episode description. I'm John Snow, and I'd like to say thank you for listening to Snowcast. I'll be sharing another episode next Tuesday, so please follow the podcast on your platform of choice, and I hope to meet you back here very soon. Bye for now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.